This is the Scoop Duck Podcast. Scoop Duck Podcast. Scoop Duck Podcast. Every game. You are going to go back to throw the ball. Sets up, looks, throws toward the corner of the end zone. It is intercepted. Intercepted. And it's in the ball. Every story. If we just continue to push and grind and go and take care of our guys, it's going to be built to last. The Scoop Duck Podcast. Scoop Duck owner, Justin Hopkins. And Matt Bagley from 96.1, 580, the game. Oregon is back-to-back Pac-12 champions, though I, I should mention there's a bit of an asterisk attached to this season. Yesterday, we learned Oregon's future, and I can sum it up in one word, fiesta. What do you think about that, my friend? Uh, I mean, love it. I mean, I think, uh, you know, obviously, if we're talking, you know, two weeks ago, uh, Ducks coming off two losses, looking at three and two, um, you know, you're, you're starting to wonder, you know, do the Ducks get a bowl berth? Do, you know, uh, will they accept it? What, what, you know, there were a lot of, a lot of scenarios. And, and of course, we had to figure out, you know, if they were going to get a chance to play Washington or not. And, uh, you know, of course, as everybody knows, at this point, there was a lot that went on the last two weeks. But, you know, I think, you know, if you're if you're an Oregon fan, I know it seems like <laughs> it seems like a lifetime ago. But you know, Oregon fans, you know, two weeks ago, coming off two losses that uh, you know shouldn't have been losses, quite, quite frankly, and then uh, you know not having a chance to get some uh, revenge, you know, or vengeance on Washington, uh, and then really basically, you know, three four days prior, backing your way into the Pac-12 championship game, which you go on to win. I, if that's not a roller coaster of emotions, I don't know what it is. So yeah. um, it, it's just really funny to think about two weeks ago, you know, Oregon fans are, oh, this season didn't matter. You know, you know, I mean, it was a bad season, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then next thing you know, the Ducks are Pac-12 champs and go into play against numbers. Was it number six? I think Iowa State in the Fiesta Bowl. Yeah. That's a hell of a turnaround in two weeks. <laughs> yeah. And, and we'll get to that Iowa State team in a couple of minutes. But I, I think about the fan base this way. I've said before on my show, one win can spark everything. Like the, the, your whole week, your whole outlook on life for the next week just magically improves if your favorite team wins. And it doesn't matter if it's Oregon football. could be any favorite team, any sport. I know for me, when they win, I feel a hell of a lot better. And, and I think that's just what happened here is people got really upset. Uh, the fumble that Shuck had in the Cal game or the, uh, the interception in the Oregon State game or letting the Beavers score as many points as they did, Jamar getting that touchdown on the first drive and never looking back. When you win, and when you win in the L.A. Coliseum, against an unbeaten USC team, against a team that had been mouthing off on social media for months about how they were the best team in the Pac-12 and they were recruiting all these great guys and this and that. When you get that win, nothing else matters. Well, and to your point, like you said, you know, to see all of the, the talk by USC and, you know, all this take back the West, take back the West, I mean, you rarely, if ever, hear Mario Cristobal even remotely utter anything, even if it's you know, uh, you know, even if it's thinly veiled at a, at another team. And it was very clear yesterday in the Fiesta Bowl conference that you know he was aiming at USC when he was talking about you know making edits and talking about doing it isn't the same as actually doing it. And, right. 
And uh, right. it was very clear that that was in a full intent at USC and their take back the West, you know, mantra that they were preaching. And I mean, here's this, we, you know, we could be homers about it and be like, Hey, suck at USC, whatever. But at the end of the day, they're five and one, they had a good season. Their recruiting class is far better than it was last year. It's it, it goes without saying that they've made some improvements. Right. Now that said, have they caught Oregon? Have they passed Oregon? It, it certainly doesn't seem Seems so. That was a close game. Uh, you know, the Ducks had had virtually no time to prepare, and I guess for that matter, USC didn't either. Um, and for me, the biggest concern I had about that game was Oregon going on the road. I mean, they have not played well on the road, specifically Tyler Shuck. And once again, he didn't play all that well once again, but the defense certainly showed up, and, and to hold USC to 24 points is definitely, uh, you know, quite remarkable. Again, just to your point, like you're saying, you know, for it to be two weeks, it makes my job easier when the Ducks win. It's a whole lot better around the scoop duck boards when the Ducks win. And it's funny how, you know, we and I say we as Duck media, Duck fans, everything like that, you know, poking holes at at Washington's Pac-12 North claim. And here we are as Oregon fans claiming the Pac-12 championship. It's just how those things work. I get it. I mean, it's just human nature is funny and it and it's really when you take a look, step back and kind of look at it you know maybe kind of laugh at yourself a little bit maybe laugh at other fans maybe laugh at other fun ba- fan bases and just realize that at the end of the day this is entertainment this is fun to break away from from real life this was fun to follow this i mean it's just you know college football is great and and uh it, it's just i don't know man it, uh, you know you and i what do we got we got like two more podcasts left in in 2020 uh, I suppose, and it's. I mean, it. What a what a year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and you talk about Washington fans are getting ready to raise that uh, North Division banner in Seattle, and USC fans and Colorado fans, they're they're going to think about this season in a different way and and take some victories out of it as well. Not to mention Duck fans, of course, getting to print the hats and the T-shirts and. Cristobal getting to use the trophy in every single media appearance he makes from now till next December. But um, I'm thinking about just the chaos that unfolded in the Pac-12 this year. And I'll say this. If a Pac-12 team couldn't get into the college football playoff, which I think we both understand to be true, that even if they had gone unbeaten, we look at how the, the, the voters handled Cincinnati, how they handled um, some of the other teams. I'll, I'll put Indiana in this bunch, how the New Year's Six handled Indiana, who had only one loss on the year. Um, we saw how teams that, that didn't play a blue-chip schedule were treated by the committee. If a, if a Pac-12 team couldn't get into the playoff, the next best thing from an entertainment standpoint is this kind of chaos yeah it's definitely a lot of chaos this year and i mean we knew it and uh you know i think for the the pac-12 to have a team in the fiesta bowl you know i think that's good you know no it's not the rose bowl no it's not better but uh you were always behind the eight ball to begin with no matter what i'm not sure i mean obviously you know we could sit here and look at at usc five and oh schedule uh, you know, let's just say they go on to beat the Ducks and, and move to a 6-0 and mark. I think they were 15 headed into that game with the Ducks, yeah. if I recall correctly. They had no shot at the playoff, None. and they were, None. you know, they were 5-0. and 
And, uh, you know, it's pretty clear to me that Oregon, let's just say they were also 5-0 and, and went to beat USC. I don't think they would have been there. You know, they probably would have finished a little higher than that, maybe around a 7 or 8 or something to that effect, but they weren't getting in the, into the four. Uh, I'm personally, and we could go on and talk about this, for, I'm personally very disappointed in the committee this year. It's pretty clear that that's a sentiment a lot of major national media folks share as well. Uh, I think they really got it wrong, and I think that this becomes the year. This becomes the year. I know that it's been a hot topic, and it, it you know since they actually originally expanded the playoff, I think this is the year now that the committee forces themselves to really look at expanding this playoff because of all of the exclusions that were made. I mean, Notre Dame does not belong in there. Uh, you were, you know, I, I'm guessing if it wasn't Notre Dame, you were going to give it to Texas A&M. Right. Uh, you know, Ohio State seems like they were, you know, pretty well rewarded for a limited schedule. Why? Why? Why were they rewarded uh, after really not having all that long? Uh, excuse me, hard of a strength of schedule. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we take a look back, sure they played some ranked teams at the time, but it it sure looks like they were poorly ranked. Penn State, uh, you know, talk about them and some others. Um, yeah, I think the exclusion of Cincinnati and the exclusion of some others uh, and the way this was handled is really going to force their hand this offseason to, to, to look and take a long, hard look at some some format of an expanded playoff. You think in six or eight? You know, I personally have felt and I continue to feel I, I think six is the number. And uh, don't get me wrong, I would enjoy an 18 playoff. I'm not vehemently opposed to it. I think six is the number and you know, how are you going to do six? Well, in my mind, you give the top two teams a week off. They get, they've earned it. I mean, the NFL does it. I have no problem with the top two teams getting a week off. It means that they've earned it. We usually see in almost every year, the most turmoil come after the top two teams. It's been Alabama and Clemson, you know, basically for the last few years, for the most part, obviously it was LSU and Clemson. Uh, last year but you know you see in those top two teams and again I think the top two teams are pretty clear this year you know uh, Alabama and Clemson are the top two teams in my mind uh, once again this year Ohio State Notre Dame Texas A&M you know the that that number three through number six that's really where we ultimately are having the biggest arguments year in and year out not just this year this year's included Mm -hmm. but year in and year out you get to three to six and it's kind of like hey Look, these teams only have one loss. They can compete. Maybe they don't beat Alabama and Clemson, but give them a chance and and reward Alabama and Clemson. I'm using them, for example, you know, for for having really strong seasons and and give them a first-round buy. I think six is the number. I've always felt that way. I think it works, but that's just me. I wouldn't be opposed to eight either. So a couple of things. Uh, We have a rule whenever I hear stuff on here. I try to let you know. I'm hearing a click on your end. Maybe you're you're tapping the desk or or your phone is buzzing like I know it does from time to time. Um, My my question to you, because you got my brain buzzing with this. I think it's funny that the... uh, the, the, the controversy surrounding the playoff, you're totally right about this, is always around that third or fourth or fifth team, it, which, which is funny to me because I remember before the playoff, the inspiration for the playoff was that the controversy was always about the number two team. 
we never knew who number two was, right? There's there's that year where the Ducks um, ha- have a say in it, but Miami goes. Uh, there's a year where USC has a say in it, and they end up splitting the national title, even though they weren't the number two in the final final say. Um, it felt like that was the controversy every year. And then we come up with a playoff, and now we know one and two every year. There's no debate. There's no contest over who one and two are. It's always three and four and five. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, that's where, you know, that's where it is again this year. And most oftentimes there's a pretty clear one, two, and sometimes there's even a pretty clear three in there uh, in some years. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, I see no reason why those top two teams can't be rewarded you know, people are going to claim it's unfair. Why should they get a buy? Well, they deserve it. They won. They're, yeah. you know, clearly the top two teams in the country. More than likely, most years they're undefeated. Maybe they're one-loss teams. Uh, you know, and let's be real: a, a one-loss SEC team is usually uh, a pretty good football team. At the end of the day, uh, a one-loss ACC team, not so much. But, uh, anyways, yeah, I, I think you and I are on the same page. You get to number three, four, five, six. And it's usually a lot of jumble after that. And it's a lot of really close teams. You're arguing, Hey, this team could beat this team. And, 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 and then argument could go both ways. Again, I don't think this impacts the pac 12 this year. They weren't going to get there, but I do think the way the committee ranked teams this year, uh, I think they did poorly. And I think they really are going to put the pressure on themselves to have to expand this thing sooner than later. Uh, let's look back on that Ducks Pac-12 title win on Friday. Um, you, you pointed it out. Tyler Shuck didn't have a great game. I think back to a play that, that should have been picked off late in the fourth that might have really swung things. Mercifully, that ball hits the turf. The Ducks hold on to win. I thought that Oregon got some major contributions from several players on that team. Who do you think stepped up the most to help Oregon get the win? Oh, well, there's, uh, you know, first off, uh, I mean, if I don't start with Kayvon Thibodeau, I'm doing this podcast an absolute disservice. I don't know how people don't look at that performance as epic. I mean, that's that young man has nearly single-handedly given Oregon two back-to-back Pac-12 championships. I mean, you think about how disruptive he was last year against Utah, which he was, and you think about it this year. I mean, Caden Slovis was never able to get into a rhythm. He was always having to move and escape the pocket. Caden Slovis, as we talked about, and you can see it, but as we talked about with Lithlade and QB11, he's a very mechanical type of quarterback, meaning really he's kind of locked into that first read you might possibly get a second read out of him on some occasions, but more than likely he's, you know, the, the, the play is predetermined and he knows where he's supposed to go. And when you change that, it, it, it throws off everything within the USC's offense. I mean, Kayvon Thibodeau uh, and his performance was just masterful uh, to follow that. I mean, I, I know that Jamal Hill got the two interceptions and I think that was a great game for him. Probably easily his best game as a duck. I thought he played really well. I still thought the safety group did well, but still struggled in some areas a little bit. There was a lot of the underneath crossing routes that were that were open. Drake London was continually able to find a, a soft spot in the middle of the defense that is on the linebackers and safeties. But my next two guys are easily the corners. Mikel Wright, Diamado Lenore. Lenore was just a monster out there. And, you know, you didn't hear a lot from Tyler Vaughn's and Amon Ross St. Brown 
on the night, and that was because Mikkel Wright and Diamador Lenore were so damn good. Mm -hmm. It was Drake London that was getting the bulk of the work that made the biggest impact on this game because oftentimes that was either the handoff to the linebacker, the, the third corner, you know, the nickel, the safety. It was somebody else's responsibility. Uh, I don't know which one to say played better between Mikkel Wright and Diamador Lenore. Uh, clearly Lenore had the INT, but nobody threw it at Mikhail Wright, at least not very often, uh, which is the mark of a great corner. So, uh, you know, those two guys were next up for me. Uh, he probably didn't have the statistics to back it up quite as much as I would like to make this claim, but I was thoroughly impressed with Sean Dollars as well in the run game. I thought he showed some great things. Again, I know he didn't leave his, his footprint on this game in the way that Thibodeau and Lenore and Wright did, but just the couple runs he had and that little burst and that little wiggle, uh, you know, was good. And I'm a big, I'm a big Travis Dye fan. I think he's been Oregon's most improved player this year. And I don't say that lightly. Kayvon Thibodeau, as good as he was last year, has been a, a, a whole different level this year. Right. But Travis Dye's right there with him. He's been a, a, he's probably been one of Oregon's top two most improved players, you know, quite possibly with Kayvon Thibodeau. Uh, you know, so for me, those were some of the guys that really stuck out. Last thing, and to your original point as well, I don't think Tyler Shuck played all that well. And I know there's been some defense of him, and I fully agree with Hithliday's statistics and numbers. And, and I get all that, but you just look at the eyeball test, and it just doesn't look like he's doing a very good job. And I, and I don't mean to, to nitpick and pile on. Right. I think he needs to be better. He just needs to be more consistent. His reads need to be better. I understand the numbers are there if you want to support him being a good and efficient quarterback, but I mean, we're just, we just got to look at the football games and he hasn't, he just, his last three games have not been good. And uh, I think a lot of credit goes to two things, the coaching staff for maybe identifying that themselves and deciding to implement Anthony Brown into the game plan. And secondly to Anthony Brown, because he came in ice cold in at least two different situations and performed admirably. And, you know, I know he's an experienced quarterback, but it's not easy to do that. It's not easy to sit there for two quarters and all of a sudden have your number called and be like, hey, go out there and lead this offense. And that's not an easy thing to do. And it wasn't just him turning around and handing off the football because that's what we see happen mm -hmm. in the NFL. You know, the starting quarterback gets injured. The next guy comes in. It's two or three straight handoffs, whatever the down is, uh, out of that backup quarterback. And then they go back to the drawing board. That was not the case with Anthony Brown. He came in uh, and led the offense on a couple key drives there and, and a scoring drive. And, uh, you know, again, I know I know he wasn't Kayvon Thibodeau, but if you don't tip your cap to that young man, I think you're doing him a disservice. Yeah, yeah. A couple follow-ups. Uh, I'm with you on Kayvon. I was agape, jaw on the floor, watching him just crush through the line. I, I, I've said it before. I'll make this comparison again, and I know people are going to roll their eyes and go, oh, that's that's Matt Bagley, the Oakland Raider fan, Vegas Raider fan, just going with somebody that he saw a lot. But I, I see so much Khalil Mack in his game. The ability to get low, get leverage, and just treat linemen like blocking sleds. They can never get a grip on him. Uh, you can chip him. You can double-team him. But he's always going to push the line. I, I think 
some games he's not going to make that much of an impact because you'll have a quarterback that can roll out and 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 evade the pocket and and kind of take that part of his game away but you have a quarterback like Keaton Slovis and an offense like USC that wants to spread the field, so they want their quarterback centrally located in the pocket. He's not going to veer to the left or the right that much. Kayvon Thibodeau is able, like you said, to disrupt, and 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 that disruption was key for Oregon. I see so much Khalil Mack in his game. I think he could be a, a number one overall pick someday. I still believe that. Um, some of the other highlights on what you mentioned, I was terrified of Amon Ross St. Brown heading into this game. I, I, I don't think USC was deserving of their unbeaten record, but if they had any argument to that unblemished tally, it was the fact that Amon Ross St. Brown owned the fourth quarter, clutch catches, big plays in every single one of their wins. And, and the fact that Oregon largely kept him from getting his – just like they did with Michael Pittman last year, that is a hell of a feather in the cap to Andy Avalos in the Duck defense. Um, and then you mentioned Tyler Shuck, who I'm with you. I like the stats. I actually like the numbers that he can put out in a, on a game-to-game basis. I think the big plays are awesome. I think that the potential is still there for him to tap into and become the best quarterback in the Pac-12 someday. But I keep thinking back to that horrible duck of a throw in the fourth quarter. And and we've seen this countless times in all levels of football. You can be an incredible quarterback on first down and second down and third down. And you can be an incredible quarterback for the first three quarters. But if your decision making isn't excellent for all four quarters and you throw an interception, you're Jay Cutler. Or, Jay, or Jeff George, uh, one of these guys, Kerry Collins, that y- you have the wow plays, but it's canceled out by the head-scratching plays. And I think that's the next step for him. I don't know if he's the answer long-term. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, it, it, puts, uh, it puts everyone in a difficult position, uh, you know, of, of basically trying to project this young man. And that's the thing, I'm not, at this particular moment, this is his first year. He's had three games on the road. He's only started six football games. If you think of it, he's only started six football games. Mm-hmm. I'm not ready to throw in the towel on him yet, but it's very clear that he has got some things to improve upon. And that's where, you know, this this spring, hopefully that the, the Ducks and everybody is able to get a little bit closer to a normal spring uh, and summer and a normal fall camp. And you know, I, I mean, I think next year the, the, there's going to be a jury waiting to see in the first couple games if he's taken that next step or not, because that's ultimately, you know, kind of where we're at. That's the next step here uh, with Tyler Shuck. And, and let's be clear, and, I, and I've said this already, uh, he is going to have an um, – we don't know if Anthony Brown will return to the team or not. He can if he elects to. He does not have to. So we'll wait and see how that is approached. But we'll just assume for now that he moves on. I don't know why. I'm not basing that off info. I'm just saying we'll assume for now Anthony Brown moves on. Ty Thompson's going to come in and push him. And I know that there's some guys there now. Jay Butterfield's done some good things. You know, Robbie Ashford was deemed a little bit of a project when he showed up. So I imagine that's still the case a little bit there. Uh, You know, Kale Millen's moving around and being a a selfless team guy, and that's great to see. 
but I think it's clear to see that his path might not be at quarterback. So yeah, you're looking at Ty Thompson, who's a five-star, who's got all the intangibles, who's won at that level, who runs a really clean offense, uh, you know, down in Arizona. You know, I, I, again, I think if Tyler Shuck does not push himself to take those next steps in the spring, because again, Ty Thompson will be here for the spring, in the spring, summer, and fall. Ty Thompson is going to be breathing down his neck and things could get totally interesting next fall. We'll just have to see how things progress. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So we're, we're in agreement there. Kayvon Thibodeau is a game wrecker. Tyler yeah. Shuck, he might have a quarterback competition next year. Um, how do you feel about the coaching staff? You think there's, there's going to be uh, any battles, any turnover there? You know, I, I think – and again, I'm not throwing this out there to to rattle fans up or whatever, but I think we're gonna. I think we would be a little naive not to think that there could be some movement. I think just moving forward, you need to come to expect that there's gonna be movement every year. Is there gonna be whole roster turnover? Not likely. I don't think that's the case. But to think that there won't be one to two moving parts in most given years, I I think that's unrealistic. So again, this year. You know, uh, the Ducks have two weeks, uh, you know, to kind of get things going uh, for that bowl game. I think there will be some conversations had in those couple weeks. Uh, you know, this is, I mean, this is old, this is peak silly season. This is when head coaching jobs are changing hands. You know, uh, uh, schools are firing coaches. Schools are, are demoting coaches. Head coaches are getting rid of coordinators because their, their ass is on the line. That's what happens now and ultimately – you know, they're going to come calling for Oregon's coaching staff because it's really good top to bottom. The coordinators are good. You know, they're likely not long uh, as coordinators. And, and I would imagine both are head coaches probably within two to three years. Worst case, you've got some assistants that are looking like they could be potential coordinator guys. Um, you know, yeah, I, I think Mario Cristobal's going to have a couple of uh, at least one or two spots to fill this year. I don't think it does a lot of favors for me to sit here and say who, you know, I'd just be guessing at the moment, but just based on, you know, uh, just based on the odds. Yeah. He's going to probably have a job or two to fill. Although, you know, the key ones being the coordinators after the head coach, I believe Oregon's probably going to get through just fine this year, which is good, which is big. I mean, it's good to have that kind of continuity and to have this young team and this young nucleus and basically be able to keep everybody together you know, through the off season and, and into next year uh, should be great for Oregon's outlook next year. Okay. Uh, we have a couple different directions we can take this because last week was like you said on the pod, the craziest week you've ever covered ever. <laughs> for Oregon. Yeah. Uh, signing day, pack 12 and Cristobal contract drama. We didn't focus enough on signing day. In years past, the pod after signing day, I take a little bit of time and we go over each of the guys that Oregon brings in. Do you want to do that now? Yeah, I, I think we definitely need to hit on signing day a little bit more. I know okay. it probably feels a week removed for everybody already, but the reality is signing day was Wednesday and today's right. Monday. So right. <laughs> it's not that not that far removed, but here we are. And, yeah. and you know my perspective. All the diehards are on your site, Scoop Duck, but I... I I think the diehards get outnumbered sometimes, and so I yeah. try to want to focus and cater to everybody else. Um, just about a minute or two on each of these guys. Teach me about them. 
teach us about him. Uh, let's start with uh, Dante Thornton, wideout. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the Ducks obviously went heavy on offense this year. I've mentioned that. Uh, Dante Thornton was the guy they went after early, 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 early. And then once Oregon was able to pluck, you know, Joe Moorhead as offensive coordinator, I, I feel that all but cemented Oregon as the favorite for Thornton. You know, he clearly didn't make his decision until the fall, but I think since March-ish, Oregon was the team to beat there. Uh, silky smooth. The guy's got hands. He can run. I mean, the, the, you know, you're talking about a guy that's definitely coming in and competing for some snaps next year. I, I think I think he plays. I'm not saying he starts, but I think he plays next year. And, and uh, you know, the Ducks are, are very happy to have Dante Thornton. Uh, tell me about Damon David. You know, Damon David, a little different guy there. Uh, you know, Oregon clearly needed some safety help. Obviously, uh, you know, they, they went after Jordan Happel in the grad transfer portal. Uh, we'll just say that was met with mixed results in terms of his performance this year. Uh, you know, I think Damon David, who, you know, also came from Maryland and is friends with Dante Thornton, uh, you know, that's a guy I really like. Probably one of the more underrated guys in Oregon's class. Uh, you know, so David, I think, is definitely going to come in and help steady that group a little bit next year as far as safeties go. Uh, you know, at this point, you know, it certainly appears that you return all of your key players for, from safety this year. Uh, and, you know, that being Verone McKinley, uh, Jamal Hill, you know, Nick Pickett was in there uh, quite a bit. Bennett Williams was in there quite a bit. Those were kind of the, the key four. Uh, you know, I think Damon David's going to have a chance to come in and compete with those guys, at least for snaps once again. And uh, Kingsley, I, and I, I'm going to butcher this young man's name a billion times. This will be my first. Kingsley Sua Matea. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, every you know, coming from Utah, uh, you know, he was a borderline five-star, high four-star uh, recruit, depending on the service you looked at. Uh, just, I mean, the way he bends, the way he moves, he's instantly getting the comparisons to Panay Sewell, whom he's close with, whom he worked out with in the, in the spring and summer when things were all paused, there was tons of videos of Panay Sewell and Kingsley working out together. Uh, you know, let's be clear, Oregon, I, I would say Oregon has some work to do in their starting five. That's not an indictment. I think it's pretty fair, but uh, they also have a lot of work to do in those five guys that come after that first five. It's pretty clear that Mario Cristobal didn't have a lot of trust after number six and seven in his offensive line. So a guy like Kingsley, uh, you know, I believe is going to have an, a, a, an instant chance at breaking that two deep worst case. Okay. Keanu Williams. Keanu Williams is uh, is that NFL body type. He's he's fairly rare out west, and, and he's got the length. He can move. He can do all those things. I think the best thing for Keanu Williams is the fact that he's going to come into a, a fairly deep defensive line group and have the opportunity you know, to develop and grow for a year or two and not be counted on. And I think that's a tremendous thing for him. It's not an indictment in the slightest of his talent. I think he's a guy that has a really high floor, but an incredible ceiling. So he'll come in, uh, you know, get to work right away, get to work with Big Joe, uh, you know, try to find his role within the defensive line group. But again, 
there's a lot of schools he would have gone to and probably been thrust into a, a starting role or at least a very key role. I'm not sure that that's the case at Oregon. But again, I think this is a guy in two to three years that everybody's well aware of who he is. And he's a very key contributor on this defensive line. Really love Keanu Williams. And best of all, you kept him away from your competitors. Mm, that's always a win. How about Jeff Bassa? Uh, Jeff Bassa, uh, you know, so, you know, you know, you kind of asked me about Damon David and, and Jeff Bassa is also a safety. Bassa is going to come in and kind of be that enforcer role from your safety group, going to be the guy that comes up and hits, going to be the guy that comes up and maybe forces uh, a fumble with a big hit. You know what I mean? Just uh, I would say Nick Pickett kind of did that role a little bit this year. He had a couple big tackles against USC, one at the goal line there. Uh, you know, that to me is, is kind of more Jeff Bossa's game, whereas Damon David's a little bit more of that Javon Holland center fielder able to roam, move, uh, you know, cover a lot of ground and be a little bit more of a coverage safety uh, for Oregon. So, again, that's a great compliment to have, you know, one of each type of safety there. I still think the Ducks are probably at least looking in the market for another safety. Uh, you know, but you did well there grabbing two guys that do fill two different types of roles for you. How about Darren Barkins? Darren Barkins, man, that's, uh, you know, you're talking about a corner that that has good size. He's in that six-foot range, so he's not short. Uh, not He's not 6'2 or 6'3, especially long. But let's face it, for every, you know, rare 6'2, 6'3 corner that works out, there's 200 of them that don't. Uh, that type of length. And, and, and playing corner and staying fluid enough to play corner uh, is very, very rare. So, you know, you're talking about Barkins, who's got that six-foot size, uh, blazing fast. You can see some video of him running 4'3", 4'4", 4'40", I understand 4'3", puts him at elite NFL speed. But, again, you're talking about a guy that's got speed. Uh, whether that 4-3 is valid or not, you're talking about a guy with speed, can turn run. The Ducks feel like this is a hidden gem of Southern California that they were able to, to, take, to take away and, and really were able to kind of keep hidden because of the fact that there wasn't a big spring, you know, seven-on-seven seven circuit and, and, and spring ball and, and, and all that stuff going on. So, uh, you know, uh, Barkins is a very high upside guy and, and corners absolutely a spot. The Ducks need a guy like that. The only negative to Barkins, the only negative at all is that he won't be an early enrollee out of the 20 signees that the Ducks have. They have technically 21 signees, but out of the original 20, uh, which we can talk about, but out of the original 20, 15 of them will be enrolling early, which is absolutely incredible. I, I don't think I've ever seen that happen at Oregon before. Yeah not in that quantity. Barkins won't be one of those early enrollees, which is something I wish he would be, but his school does not allow for it. You mentioned early enrollees. Uh, this next guy, I'm pretty sure he's going to be leading that charge. The pride of Lebanon, Oregon, Keith Brown. Yeah, Keith Brown, uh, you know, keep the top player in state, uh, in state. Uh, Thumper, you know, that's a guy that can come up and, and, and lay the wood a little bit. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, again, I, this isn't a slight to Keith Brown, but he's going to have the opportunity to come to Oregon and have a year or two to, to grow and develop and become a very well-rounded linebacker. Again, not a slight to him, but he's signing in a class just after Noah Sewell, Justin Flo, and Jackson LaDuke. So we're just calling a spade a spade here. So uh, a very good situation for Keith Brown to come in. And, and I think he's a good all-around uh, linebacker. and 
uh, you know, one of the best parts about him is he was such an instrumental part in, in, in recruiting this class for Oregon because that sort of peer-to-peer recruiting uh, is a huge help to the uh, coaching staff. So a uh, lot to like about Keith Brown, and, and uh, you know, I'm excited for what he does. Uh, you know, <clears throat> we have seen, and I can use just, I mean, for example, here, Brady Breeze, we have seen so many kids from the state of Oregon come in and play in Oregon that might not be as heralded as some of these other uh, out-of-state guys, but they just play with a little more pride and a little more passion coming from the state, growing up in the state, cheering for Oregon, yeah. uh, you know, their whole life. And I think Keith Brown's very much a guy that might be just one of those absolute passionate leader on the field type of players for Oregon for, you know, potentially two to three years and, and really just being a leader of the defense because of that passion. Now, Jalen Davies. Yeah, Jalen Davies. I mean, uh, you know, uh, another another guy from modern day. You know, I know everybody, uh, myself included, got concerned when Kyron Ware Hudson flipped uh, from Oregon to USC, the wide receiver, uh, also from modern day. I know the two are close, but, uh, you know, give Rod Chance a lot of credit for hanging on there. Uh, just a very silky, smooth, fluid kind of guy. Reminds me a ton of Diamador Lenore, just in the way that he plays, the way that he moves, his size, all those things. Reminds me a lot of Diamador Lenore. Um, and again, you know, what I said on Barkins, uh, the Ducks need help at corner. Uh, I do, I do, obviously I love, we. I'm personally expecting Diamador Lenore to leave after this season is complete. I think that's the right move for him. He probably won't be back. Love what I've seen out of Mikel Wright. I thought DJ James played a, a pretty solid game uh, Friday night against USC. But after that, I mean, you're, you're basically talking about two corners and nothing after it at this moment. So, you know, Darren Barkins and Jalen Davies might be two guys, uh, you know, most thrust into key snaps and key plays for Oregon next year as true freshmen, basically just because of body count alone. Yeah, and a couple months ago, I remember doing a pod where we, we probably dedicated 10 minutes bragging and boasting and just wondering about this young man. Tell me about Troy Franklin. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, f- you know, for us on Scoop Duck, he's, he's the highest rated commit in Oregon's class. I don't think it's all that close, although Ty Thompson did get, did get pretty close there uh, with a lot of services. I think Ty Thompson's probably second. Uh, Bram Walden's probably third, at least for me personally. And I'm just going off memory. I think those are Oregon's top three signees in this class. Uh, you could probably put Kingsley as a, as a very close fourth there. Uh, Troy Franklin's the dude, man. I mean, just, uh, he is, he's got great hands. Uh, he can run with the best of them. He's explosive, uh, big yards after catch kind of guy, uh, explosive play kind of guy not just a deep threat, not just an underneath guy, not just a slot guy. Um, this, in my opinion, is the most well-rounded, most polished receiver Oregon has ever signed in program history. I'm fully aware that Oregon has signed Cam Colvins and other uh, high-profile receivers in the past. I've been here for it. I do believe Troy Franklin is Oregon's most polished and most ready-made receiver that they've ever signed in program history. This guy is going to be a problem for the Pac-12. He plays next year, probably starts if I had to guess, but he plays next year, worst case. Wow, you heard it there first. Um, Here's another guy that I remember us spending some of this podcast to talk about because he has measurables that you can't coach, you can't teach. He's just 
tall, strong. I can see him fitting in really early. Uh, Maliki Matavau. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm going to assume we get to both of them, but, you know, Oregon went after two tight ends and, again, got two different styles of tight end. Maliki Matavau is a little bit more of that mauler. Um, I don't want to say Hunter Campmoyer. Hunter Campmoyer's had a really good year. I don't know if people have noticed, but, I mean, he got a late start to it, and, and you know, his hands were an issue. He severely corrected that this year in, in a big way and has made a big impact. Uh, I'm not even sure that he's had a drop this year, so credit to Campmoyer. We're talking about Matt DeVal, and the reason I, I bring up Campmoyer, I think they're very similar. He's a, he's a tough nose guy, can block, good athlete, uh, not afraid to get his, his hands in there and get dirty, but can get you those – you know, get you those really tough third and threes or or really just kind of, you know, set up a block and then kind of sneak off out of that and get you that, you know, four to six yards. I think that's going to be Matt DeVal's game. You absolutely have to have that. I know Oregon loves to run a lot of two tight end offense when they can. I don't think they were able to this year because of bodies and numbers uh, as much as they would have liked to. Uh, so bringing in a guy like Matt DeVal, uh, possibly keeping Camp Moyer if he wants to stay another year. Obviously, you've got Spencer Webb. Uh, you've got Patrick Herbert, who spent most of the year nicked up and wasn't able to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think you've got some bodies now to be able to do that. Matavao is going to be a guy that works into that rotation easily. Tell me about Bram Walden. Uh, I, I think a lot of the – I'd have to look, and I'm going off memory. I think a lot of the recruiting sites have uh, Kingsley higher ranked than Bram Walden. I think Bram is a better player right now today. Just an uh, uh, Kingsley probably has the higher ceiling uh, at the moment, but I think Bram Walden's floor is already higher. So that means he's a little more polished, probably a little more ready-made. Uh, I think you can move him between guard and tackle. I think he's that got that kind of versatility. Uh, I think that's very valuable. I think that's something that uh, Alex Mirabal and Mario Cristobal prioritize is finding flexibility in offensive linemen. I don't, I don't mean they can bend over and touch their toes. I mean they can play all three positions on the offensive line. Uh, so I, I think a guy like Bram Walden, who, I th- who comes from Saguaro, which is, a, a, which is College Factory U uh, for the last five years under Coach Mons, I, I think Bram Walden comes in and is instantly, from first practice in fall camp, probably of one of the early practices in spring ball, is probably immediately immediately into that too deep and a guy that they just start shuffling around and trying to find out where he fits best. Love Bram Walden. I think he gets good snaps next year, and I really like his game. I think that guy's a future NFLer. Yeah, and uh, y- you mentioned one player is a future NFLer. This next guy has some NFL lineage, Brandon Buckner. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, there <laughs> there's – Here's a thing that people forget about recruiting, okay? And it's easy to do. I do it myself. You know, when you get to recruiting, all right, let's just say you're not a person that's an avid recruiter, uh, you know, follows recruiting, okay? Let's just say that you're kind of casual. Well, the first thing you do, the first thing you do, and don't lie to yourself, the first thing you do is you look at his recruiting ranking. Is this a three-star, four-star, five-star? Is he top 50 guy, top 150? You know, give me this kid's ranking. Let me look at that. Okay, the second thing you do the second thing you do, and don't kid yourself, the second thing you do is you look at his measurables. You know, is this guy six foot one, six foot two, you know, 300 pounds, 200 pounds, depending on what he plays? What are this guy's measurables? Well, okay, you look at Brandon Buckner, his ranking, it's fine. He's a three star. 
uh, a high three star. It's it, it's okay. It's not great. Uh, he's he. The fun, ironic part is, I, I I did see this tweet. He's Oregon's uh, lowest ranked commit, uh, and he'd be like the ninth highest commit on on most other classes. You know, ninth tenth highest commit on most other classes. I think besides USC, I'd have to look at this. So that tells you a lot right there about Oregon's class. Uh, you know what? If you skipped over ranking and you skipped over uh, his measurables, okay, and if you went to what we used to go and look at, which is production, mm-hmm. this guy's a freaking All-American, okay? Right. I mean, he just he gets sacks. He's a highly productive player. He's got a big-time motor. Uh, I love all those things about him. At, at some point along the way, a lot of coaches have lost track of just simply looking, hey, is this guy a football player? Does this guy have production? Everybody's so enamored with raw projectables, measurables, and I get it. Okay, I get it. Those are the NFL qualities. I understand why you look at those. But at some point, your team, every football team, can just use a couple football guys. And if this is if this is Oregon's floor, if Brandon Buckner, a guy, I believe the number is 18 sacks in the last two seasons. I could be wrong. I think that's right. Mm-hmm. If that's the floor for Oregon's class as a defensive lineman, oh, by the way, his dad's a defensive line coach in the NFL uh, for the Arizona Cardinals. If that's the floor on guys you're taking, then I'd say you're in pretty good hands. So I'm not here sitting here telling you that Brandon Buckner starts next year. Let's be realistic. But in two to three years, this guy's going to have a chance to develop, learn from Big Joe. He's going to have he's going to make the offensive line better. He's going to have a, a lot of chances to prove a lot of people wrong. Uh, and I, I think back, I understand that they don't look the same and measurables were a little different, but I look back at a guy like Henry Mondo that was not a, a high profile ranked recruit, didn't have the dreamy measurables as a defense alignment, but I'll be damned if that guy wasn't, uh, uh, productive. Yeah. And so, uh, I think Brandon Buckner's got a shot to be that kind of football player. I, I think you're hitting at something and I'm going to be really quick so we can give some time and some love to these other players, but I think you're hitting on when you're building a locker room as a team, and I'm, I'm talking about the personnel and recruiting decisions that Oregon makes year in, year out, you can't have 100 superstars. You've got to have, of course, you go after superstars. Of course, you go after the five-star guys and the guys that you believe are going to be the, the Reggie Bushes and the Reggie Whites and you know the all-time greatest players at the top echelon of college football. But you also fill your locker room with good locker room guys, good chemistry guys, people that come from good families that are that are going to be easy to coach, that are going to be fun to practice with, that are going to make your team gel that much better. And I think he's one of those guys. Yeah, he's going to be the guy that when we're you know when you're doing uh, 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 the post game interviews, uh, excuse me, the post practice interviews with players. And, you know, if the media asks the offensive line, who do they hate going up against? Well, I mean, you know, Kayvon Thibodeau. Yeah, Yeah. Kayvon Thibodeau is an obvious, but then they're going to say, but you know what? That Brandon Buckner guy never quits, and he's tough, and he makes me better, and he has all these moves in his arsenal, and, you know, he makes my life a living hell in practice. And I I think that's what we're going to hear. And it doesn't mean that he's going to set the world on fire and have 10 sacks in the Pac-12, but, again, he can be a productive player. And, uh, and again, if this is the floor of Oregon's uh, recruiting class, then I'd say that we're in pretty good hands. What do you like about Jonah Miller? 
Well, you know, if there's one thing we know, uh, I guess I have to back myself up, you know, a little bit on what I just said. But if there's one thing we know about Mario Crisball and Alex Mirabal, they love size on the offensive line. And Jonah Miller certainly fills that uh, in spades. You know, he's a, a 6'6", 6'7", type of guy, uh, you know, 330 pounds, big body, mauler. And we know that, you know, Mario Cristobal has prioritized that since he's gotten to Oregon. He loves those big body types, and I don't blame him. Uh, it's really hard to move a big guy around. And, uh, you know, I, I think, again, I think we've seen it this year uh, with the recruiting class that Oregon signed in 2019 that showed up. I think you've got a guy there that has the big body that you bring in and and you probably take some of that bad weight and make it good weight and get him stronger, teach him how to bend a little bit, probably show him a little bit better leverage than he's used to learning at the high school level. And you're talking about a guy in, in two to three years, you know, that might be the next kind of Stephen Jones, if you will, somebody that kind of steps in and, and in that, you know, second or third year is a guy that's going to be a starter for you, maybe on one of your bookends. or, or he's, he's definitely not going to be a guard. He's more of a tackle body. Um, it's, it, it's pretty rare that you put a 6'6 guy in at guard, although you can. Um, you know, I, I think that's where Jonah Miller's uh, production lies. As much as I raved about Bram Walden and Kingsley Sumataya, I think that Jonah Miller has the opportunity to come in and have that chance to develop. And when Oregon graduates a few of these guys in a couple of years or sends a couple of them out early to the NFL, uh, I think Jonah's going to be one of those guys that's, you know, next man up and, and, and steps right in and fills the, fills those holes up. How about Jackson Light? Well, you know, the thing about Jackson Light is it's really hard to find great centers. And I mean great centers in college football. A lot of times your centers are guys that you've converted from guard and taught them how to snap. Uh, that is not Jackson Light. He's simply a, a natural center. He's going to have a feel for for those rushes that come up the middle. He's going to have a feel for basically being able to be almost like a second quarterback out there and you know putting his hand on the football, looking up and identifying what the defense is trying to do and making some calls at the line of scrimmage. So you know Jackson Light, another huge recruiting guy in this class, much like Keith Brown. Uh, very, very public on Twitter. There was never a doubt where, about where this young man was going once he committed to Oregon. Uh, there was never a doubt about that. And again, I, I think you're looking at a very uh, a versatile guy that's that holds up really well against the run, holds up really well against the pass. Um, you know, at, at right now Alex Forsyth is in there, but uh, you know, potentially I could see Jackson Light coming in mm-hmm. and possibly, you know possibly taken over that role which doesn't mean alex foresight goes to the bench it means he might be moved out to guard you just don't know uh you know i think foresight foresight has that kind of versatility so again i think this gives oregon mario cristobal alex mirabal a lot of flexibility uh in their offensive line group something that they really like uh, i would definitely look for jackson light to be uh, a contributor next year You've mentioned this next name already on this week's pod, and we've talked about him a ton in the previous episodes because I think he's that big of an impact maker for Oregon in this class, the quarterback, Ty Thompson. Yeah, I mean, shoot, that's the dude, right? I mean, I think, uh, you know, I think I feel this way, okay? And I know, uh, you know, some Oregon fans are going to have a knee-jerk reaction about the first part of this that I say. But since Marcus Mariota, Every everyone, every Oregon fan has been waiting for that high-profile quarterback signee. How do we parlay the, the success of Marcus Mariota 
into a high-profile quarterback signee. And Oregon really hasn't been able to do that. Jay Butterfield, you know, was the highest-ranked guy Oregon has signed uh, in the last six, seven years. And, you know, uh, I mean, the jury's still out because he's just a one-year guy. So I'm not – it's not an indictment of, of him there. But I think we can agree that Ty Thompson – uh, is a different kind of breed. He's he's another guy. He's going to come in, and you know you've watched a guy like DJ Ugalali go to Clemson, and you think, oh man, there's a guy that's a, a a different breed, a day one contributor. Of course, he had to back up Trevor Lawrence, but in the in the time Lawrence wasn't available, he was good. You know, you saw Bryce Young go to Alabama last year at a modern day, didn't win the job, but the feeling's good there that that's a guy that's ready in that next wave. Uh, I understand that everything I just said. Uh, every Oregon fan right now is like, hey, J-Hop, don't you remember that Justin Herbert guy? Look, I love Justin Herbert, but that was a, a, a like a, a, a high three-star, low four-star kind of guy on every service. That wasn't a high-profile uh, recruit signing at quarterback. So I say this about Ty Thompson. He is borderline five-star guy that's going to come in with every intangible, uh, you know, again, what do we know about Taylor Shuck? I don't know. It was kind of, I believe it was somewhat mixed reviews on his season. I thought he was good at home. I don't think he was as good on the road. Are these things correctables? Uh, is it a byproduct of, of learning a new offense, him being a first year guy, you know, certainly some of that attributes there, but I think Ty Thompson comes in and makes that, uh, makes that room a whole lot better if nothing else. Okay. For every Ty Thompson, there's a player that doesn't get the same hype. He kind of slips under the radar. Tell me about Terrell Tillman. Yeah, again, a guy that committed in the spring, and uh, and then we just never heard anything from him. And then, I mean, he's just not a social media guy. He's not very active on Twitter, um, doesn't do a lot of interviews, keeps to himself, and uh, next thing you know, he signed with Oregon, and just like that. <laughs> but again, if, if, if you're, if you're going to miss, you know, you, you want to miss long. I think that's the key. I think Oregon's prioritized that. Again, you're talking about another defensive edge, outside linebacker type guy uh, with a lot of good projectables. Uh, you know, uh, again, like Brandon Buckner, this is if this is the floor of your recruiting class, I'd say you're in pretty good hands. When you fill up that floor area, when you fill up that bottom third of your recruiting class with shorter corners or shorter speed guys at, at wide receiver, uh, I'm not indicting those types of players, but it, it kind of makes you wonder a little bit if that's just filler. These guys aren't just filler. I mean, these are good football players. These are projectable guys. You know, again, if you're going to miss, miss long, I think that's what, what you've got here in Tillman. And I do believe Oregon has struggled a little bit getting into the state of Texas like they would have liked. I think getting Tillman helped a little bit this year. I think Oregon was in the Bryce Foster sweepstakes for quite a while, although him not being able to take official visits probably hurt them in the end. Oh, yeah. And and I think, I do believe with Tom Herman very much on the hot seat and under a lot of fire right now, I think that you know this maybe gives Oregon an opening to even break in more in this 22 class into Texas and you you know you go and you get a guy like Terrell Tillman and 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 you get a guy here or there, uh, and that really helps. And I think that that is a state that Oregon would like to get back into. You know we're all very aware, very well aware of the Arion Springs and Lamichael James and and Lachey Seastrunks that Oregon signed out of Texas in the past. I think they'd like to get, like to get back into that state and and pull 
one, two, three guys a year out of Texas, and, and Tillman helps with that. You're a Medford guy. You ever been to Joe's Sports Bar? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I used to live in that neighborhood. It was That was my neighborhood bar. A- anyway, I remember my best friend from high school. He was in the Air Force. And he had just gotten out of basic training and A school, which was in Texas. And he had like two weeks leave. I pick him up at the airport. I take him to Joe's. We have a, we have a beer. And the first thing he tells me is, God, I miss the trees here. I, I'm right there with you. It's hard to recruit these kids in Texas. I think it's harder when you can't have them visit. Because if, if they can see Oregon, they can see the trees and the beauty here, I think that's a huge sell. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think uh... – I think a lot of Texas kids can, you know, I think they could come in and relate with Oregon and say, hey, look, you know, this this kind of offers that for most of them, uh, that kind of country feel in a sense where you can go out and go shoot a gun or go fish or go camping or go hiking, uh, go jump on a quad uh, if you want to do that and, and still very much have, uh, you know, some of that. Uh, urban lifestyle as well. That's something, you know, you kind of have the best of both worlds. I think they can relate. Uh, I think Texas kids really, you know, I think, I, I think, you know, the LaMichael James and, and, and some of those back then really resonate with kids. Yeah. Uh, you know, Oregon was oh so close to, to having Johnny Manziel who was committed at one time to Chip Kelly. You know, I, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I just think that there's an opening for Oregon to get back into Texas. I understand Jimbo Fisher's done a pretty good job there. Uh, but 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 Baylor is not that strong right now. TCU is not that strong right now. Texas is uh, is a dumpster fire, to be frank. I think there's an opening for Oregon because they're you know Texas is a state that can feed ten schools with all the talent that it has, mm-hmm. with top tier talent. Uh, I think there's room for Oregon to pull a few uh, in this 22 class. Okay, now let's get back to this. Three more names. What about Isaiah Brevard? So. It, most years, uh, Isaiah Brevard is a guy that we would be hailing as the best receiver that Oregon's, you know, going to sign in this class. I mean, he's a he's a you know he's a top one hundred and fifty, top two hundred level guy. Most years, that would be the top guy. He signed in a class that you know includes Troy Franklin and Dante Thornton, so he's third on the list. But again, if you're going to miss, and this isn't a miss because this is again a top two hundred player. If you're going to miss, miss long, you know, and here's a guy that's 6'3", 6'4", 200 pounds, can run. Uh, I think this is one of the true hidden gems of this class. I believe that this is a guy, once again, that when Oregon made the hire of Joe Moorhead official, uh, you know, that all but cemented, uh, you know, him coming to Oregon. He, he did sign with Oregon, uh, never looked back. Uh, you know, other schools did continue to pursue him, but he was locked in from the from the jump. And, uh, you know, I, it's it's just funny to me that the third best receiver, you know, that Oregon signed is, is being talked about almost uh, not at all. And and I think that this is a guy that, uh, you know, in a in a in a year or two, I think this is a guy that's definitely uh, seeing some balls thrown his way and becomes a really big part of this offense. OK, two more names. And he's already a contender for my all-name team, Seven McGee. Yeah, Seven, man. I mean, you know, he's he's been committed to Oregon for three years. He hasn't played football in two years, so his ranking 
I don't believe his ranking justifies his skill set. I mean, it's tough to really truly know that because he's bounced from Narbonne in California, uh, you know, to New York, back to L.A., back to New York. And, uh, you know, that's not the kid's fault. You know, I mean, there's a lot of things going on there that, that have, have caused that to happen. And, and uh, when you're 17 years old, that's, <laughs> that's not something you can control. So uh, this is a kid that, that's proven to be hungry. You can see it on social media. He's posting c- constant workouts that he's doing. Uh, this is a dynamic football player. This is a, a guy that I'm not sure Oregon signed since DeAnthony Thomas, and I just, I mean, he's very much that type of skill set. He's a guy that can run the football between the tackles, This that can catch the ball easily out of the backfield. I'm a big Sean Dollars guy, but this guy's even more versatile to, than that. He takes it a next to a next level. So uh, I know Jim Mastro is incredibly high on this young man. Um, I, I think there's just so much potential. And, you know, I don't know how, how long we'll see Joe Moorhead around, Oregon, but if he gets a year or two with this young man, I'm plenty excited to see what he can do. I understand the running back room is really full. I understand that the wide receiver room is fairly full, but this is really truly the only guy that does both and does both really well. So I think, uh, you know, Seven McGee kind of fills a unique slot that doesn't really fall into either category. What about Jabril McNeil? So, uh, again, you know, I, I feel like I'm beating a dead horse, but, you know, if, if you're missing on a guy, you're missing on length, you're missing on projectables. Uh, I know that Jabril McNeil falls into the bottom third of Oregon's class, and quite frankly, everything I've heard from the, the defensive staff is uh, this is very much an Andy Avalos guy that he loves, that he sees a ton of potential in, a ton of upside and I'm telling you, Oregon went after this guy early. This was not a fallback. This was not a second choice. This was a guy that Oregon said, look, we only have a couple linebacker, outside linebacker positions available in this class. They're very few. Uh, you know, Keith Brown committed very early, so Oregon knew they had to be very specific following that. They wanted Jabril McNeil in the worst way. So I guess that tells you something right there for them to kind of use it on him. Uh, his brother, Aleem McNeil, just finished at North Carolina State, won't return for that freebie season next year. He's a defensive lineman. He's a guy that was on Bruce Feldman's freaks list this past year uh, as a defensive lineman. So uh, I, I don't know what to tell you. I, I feel like I'm I'm pumping up this kid who's a, a lowly, you know, high three-star, mid mid to high three-star and I am. I'm telling you right now, the Ducks wanted him. I'm telling you, Andy Avalos stood on the table and banged the table that he wanted him. So there's got to be something there. And I think if you go look at his film, there's a lot to like about McNeil. And again, as I, as I, I mentioned about Seven McGee being kind of unique on offense, I think McNeil's unique on defense. He is a guy that can play outside linebacker. You could probably line him up in the dirt off the edge if you need to he's going to kind of be that x factor that hybrid role on defense uh that can move around a lot of places and we see in that from andy avalos he likes that he likes having guys that can move from corner to nickel to safety he likes having guys that can move from defensive end to outside linebacker to the hybrid position he loves to move pieces around and make you guess where they're coming from and i think jabril jabril mcneil is the ultimate x factor for him Okay, so I, I said I had three left, and I gave you three names. You missed I li- one. I lied. Right. I know who you missed. Because there's one guy that 
we couldn't talk about on signing day. There was a, an issue that still had to be ironed out. They ironed out that issue. Tell me oh, about Jonathan you, Flo. Then you missed two. I missed two. Oh, you no. missed two. We didn't talk about Terrence Ferguson. Okay. The the second tight end in Oregon's class, and uh, and again, as I mentioned with Matavell, when we were talking about him, I said you signed kind of that Mauler, you know, tough short yardage guy, you know, in Matavell. Well, you, you you signed that dynamic pass catching athletic guy in Terrence Ferguson, and and I think that this is a young man that Auburn offered early, USC offered early. Uh, you know, he's in the middle of the pack in, in terms of commits where Oregon signed, but I really, really like Terrence Ferguson. I think they're very excited about him. And again, you're adding a completely different body type than Matavell. I think that's a really good thing to put in that tight end room. Uh, again, a guy that contributes next year, in my opinion, in Terrence Ferguson. Uh, the last one, which you did mention, uh, Jonathan Flo, uh, something that we covered extensively on the site, Jonathan Flo. Uh, you know, Oregon kind of backed off there for most of the summer uh, and a lot, a lot of the fall kind of kept him in the fold, but kept him in the, you know, kind of in the back of the of the group there. Uh, the reason being is his academics weren't great. I mean, he just had a lot of work to do in the summer. He had a ton of work to do, uh, worked his butt off there, worked his butt off in the fall. Uh, and oh, by the way, because of COVID, a lot of the rules are changing on grades this year. There's a lot of pass failing versus A through F that changes the grading scale that changes the GPA scale. Mm -hmm. uh, also, the academic requirements were loosened because of that as well. That benefited a guy like Jonathan Flo and made it a shoe win that Seven McGee is able to qualify. So it did help in some ways there. Uh, Oregon took his commitment uh, on Monday he did not sign on Wednesday. Oregon wanted to make absolutely sure that he would be able to qualify uh, in this class before signing him officially because once you use that initial, you can't get it back. And they're very valuable this year for the Ducks. Uh, they were able to get that figured out by the end of the week. Uh, he signed on Friday. It was not announced until Saturday. That's not uncommon. He signed on Friday, which was the last day. Mm -hmm. uh, they announced it on, on Saturday rather than announce it on game day, uh, you know, being as the Ducks were playing that Pac-12 championship game. So all that came together. Younger brother of Justin Flo, obviously. Uh, not near the size of his older brother, but still plays with that tenacity, plays with that fire. You know, he can get after the quarterback. Uh, I, again, it's going to be one of your bottom third signees. And, and if this guy's the floor, his brother's a five-star, uh, you know, on your roster already. If this is the floor of this football team, I'd, I'd say Mario Cristobal is doing something right. Uh, I, I do like Jonathan Flo, and I like the fact that you can bring him on, let him get a little better, uh, bigger, a little stronger. And then in two, three years, when some of these guys start moving on to the next level, you've got a guy that's ready-made. So that's what I like about Jonathan Flo. Sounds great to me. I like that we went over each of those guys, and I'll take the L for missing Terrence Ferguson, but I appreciate <laughs> you keeping me in check. Um, yeah, yeah, so that's signing day in a nutshell. Uh, at this point in the pod, we still have a little bit of time before Fiesta Bowl, so we'll, we'll focus more of like the next pod on that. Yeah. We, we could do a five games, but I'd be willing to bet there aren't any good ones this week. 
No, I'm not ready for that. I I didn't look. I know uh, there's actually a bowl game on as we speak. The yes. Beach Bowl. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, North Texas and App State. Man, uh, yeah. just what a two such, blue chips right there. Yeah, but I mean, such a wild <laughs> year, right? I mean, it's so 2020 to have signing day, and then they announced the bowl schedule on Sunday, basically, and here we are on Monday, and there's a game being played. It's just it's a. Uh, it's 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 almost surreal. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, credit them for being able to play that bowl game and those teams for, for you know, staying committed to playing. But yeah, I, I'm not ready for a five games. I'm not really ready to break into the Iowa State, uh, you know, podcast yet. We'll save that for next week. Uh, this is kind of that time of year where we got to space stuff out a little bit better than having. You know, last two weeks has been. I can't get four or five stories up without it bumping something off the table every day. Where you know, this week specifically, it's like, okay, we kind of get a little bit of a pause here. Still got some content coming, but you kind of hit that little bit of a lull until next week. And then next week, it'll ramp back up into coverage of, of Iowa State. And, uh, you know, everybody's doing their film study now because it's a it's a it's it's an unusual opponent uh, for the Ducks. Uh, first ever meeting between these two programs. I'm very excited. I think this is a really good football game. I think it's a dangerous game for the Ducks. Iowa State's a very good football team. Matt Campbell is obviously one of the best and most respected coaches out there right now. And uh, he spoke very highly of the Ducks yesterday. Mario Cristobal spoke very highly of him and his program. Uh, and then, of course, the story within the story is Brock Purdy and Tyler Shook, who did play each other in Arizona high school football will once again match up uh, in college football. So kind of a fun story there. I know we'll get more into that, but I'm excited for this game. And, and uh, you know, we'll be able to do that on next week's podcast. But, uh, yeah, no five games, no lock of the week. Uh, I know that we'd love to talk more basketball. The women only have one game this week, and it's currently going on right now. Yeah. I think they're probably probably close to done at this particular moment they as are we're done. recording it. Yeah. They're done. Okay. They are done. Bowley bomb done. at the end. Ducks win. Bowley. Love a bowley bomb. That's uh, Shea Serrano would be oh so proud of that bowley bomb, I'm sure. Uh, but, yeah. So, I mean, obviously not a lot of lot to talk about the women. Um, you know, they're, they're going to take a 7-0 and o mark, and they don't play until January 1st. And then, uh, as I recall, I'm going over, off memory. I think the men just play on Wednesday, and that's it for the week, if I recall correctly. Yeah. yeah. And And – it's weird how they're doing it, the men, where they've got a game against UCLA at like 11 our time um, mm-hmm. on, a, on a Wednesday. I don't feel like anyone's going to watch that or, or listen to it or, or notice it, really. It's going to kind of slip under the radar. Um, but I, I love what I've seen from the men taking care of the mid-majors, getting some comfortable wins. Uh, you have that one where you snuck past U-Dub a, a while back, but it's early in the year, and that zone D always gives people trouble. I'm not concerned about that. Um, there are injuries to talk about, and Fale Dante getting hurt likely for the yeah. year. And, of course, the Will Richardson injury is still going to sting this team for a few weeks, but I, I think they're doing a really good job recovering from that and 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 adjusting to that and i think it speaks to something that i've been told a few times this is one of the deepest teams dana altman has built at oregon 100 percent agree with that 100 percent. yeah from from eight to nine to ten he's got guys that 
you know, I think he feels good about coming off the bench. You know, now now that said, it doesn't mean that they're better than the starter. It just means that you don't go from a, a 95 overall to a 65 overall. You know, it's it's a it's a lot closer, maybe, a, you know, an 80 overall or 85 or whatever. You get my point. Uh, and so, yeah, I think uh, the other thing is the versatility of this team. You can put five on the floor and you might not be the tallest team, but you're also not the shortest team. Right. And you've got guys that can all shoot, you know, from range or you've got guys that can get to the bucket. And it really makes them a very difficult team to scheme and match up for, you know, and match up for against. Uh, Got to really like what you're getting there out of, out of Oregon. Uh, and, and again, as they get healthy, as Will Richardson comes back, I know Dante won't come back, but uh, as they, they can work in a couple of these uh, late additions as well to the, to the roster mm-hmm. and get them kind of acclimated for conditioning and game speed, uh, uh, you know, if they can just keep, you know, winning three out of four games at this point in my mind, or, or even two out of three, they're going to get into March Madness, and then we'll see what we got then. Yeah. Yeah, and I think your point about length uh, maybe surpassing other measurables on this team speaks to just the, the way basketball was played in 2020. Yeah, Not all positions are valued equally, just like in other sports, right? Like in football, you'd rather have a left tackle than a running back. Doesn't mean that a running back isn't valuable, but that left tackle is going to help that running back a lot more than that running back will help that left tackle. Uh, you want that defensive tackle more than you want that linebacker. You want that shutdown corner more than you need that box safety. I think you see that in hoops where you don't need the old school center, the guy that can post you up and clean the glass and, and play smothering defense on the interior like a Dwight Howard almost or a Patrick Ewing. Right. right. You don't need that guy if you have five guys that are Kevin Durant long, athletic, or, or Andre Iguodala versatile. Um, they can take the ball up the floor or they can play off the ball offensively, defensively. They can guard uh, a driving point guard or they can drive a wing or they can drive, uh, they can defend a forward. Versatility and, and having five long, versatile wing guys, as long as you have one distributor, that's winning basketball in 2020. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think the key you know, one of the keys it's always been, uh, when, at least when it comes to March Madness, is having an experienced point guard and, and then just having that rotation, having that length in there. It has, they, you know, you go and you look at, at college basketball, it, it ha- hasn't always been the team with the tallest, biggest center that's won. You right. know, it's the, it, it, a lot of times you're, you're, you're more valuing that point guard that can lead your team way more than you are a center. And I, and I think, uh, you know, I think Oregon's been okay at point guard. I think they'll get a big boost when Will Richardson comes back, just kind of that steady hand. And I, I think the nice thing for Will Richardson is is I, I don't think his biggest strength is being the the guy in terms of scoring. And he doesn't need to be that on this team. He needs to he needs to, you know, basically lead this team and run the offense and do all those things and, and maybe just play some decent defense on the perimeter. If he can do those things, which we know he can, uh, uh, this team's very dangerous. Yeah. They're very dangerous. Yeah, and and forget everything I just said about the men and how they don't need height because they have length. 
the ladies have length and they have height. Uh, Sedona Prince, Aaron Bowley, they beat Wazoo this morning. I have so much fun watching them. Oh, me too. Always, always, always. And it's no, again, it's no slight to, to Dana Altman and the men. It's a great team. But, you know, watching the women, it's, uh, you know, watching uh, Kelly Graves women's bas- it, it's poetry in motion. I yeah. mean, it's just it's just better basketball. It just is. And, and 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 part of that is the selflessness of the women themselves versus the men. And I don't just mean Oregon women. I just I just mean in general. Right. Right. Uh, it's a, know, it's they, a more physical game. Yeah, it, it's better fundamentals. It, it, it's less of the, you know, let me dribble it down the court and, and, and pull up for some crazy shot that I end up making. It's just good basketball. It's good ball movement. Right. And, and a Kelly Graves team is the epitome of that. And, uh, yeah, they are just an absolute treat to watch. And, again, he's got the versatility, too, that we were just praising of this Altman team. He's got the versatility that, you know, maybe it's Prince one night that beat you. Maybe it's Sabali. Maybe it's, uh, you know uh, – I mean, you name maybe it's Bowley with the bomb here at the end today. Yeah, yeah. you know you, you got to guard all five and, and and hope that you can just hang with them. Yeah, yeah. Satu, of course, uh, applying her trade professionally now, but she's been replaced by a, a whole throng of of capable players on that women's team. I want to make a point before we wrap up. We've talked about this before. I think we even talked about this when we had Kelly Graves on the pod about a year ago. Oregon has done a phenomenal job recruiting international players to that women's team. And the team they played today copied that from them. Uh, If you look at the box score, Oregon Wazoo, the Cougs were led by Charlize Leaguer Walker. Now, you might not recognize that name. She is the best player to come out of New Zealand in a long time. International star. I think it's a testament to what Kelly Graves has built in Eugene that other schools are taking notice. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I think Kelly Graves really, uh, you know, found himself a cheat code there uh, going international for a few years. And like you said, everybody's starting to catch on that there's some pretty good value in, in, in going uh, internationally for some of these players. And uh, I think we're going to see more and more of that infused into women's basketball. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, that, that pretty much wraps it i feel like we hit everything that we wanted to hit this week is there anything i missed no no i mean that's a that's a full podcast i think i'm guessing we've gone an extra 20 minutes than we planned on but that's how this works and i I, you know i was glad to give the recruiting class some time because we just you know we mentioned it but didn't didn't have uh, as much time last week as a crazy week and uh yeah you know now fans have all week to kind of listen to this and and look back at the recruiting class and, and think over the USC win and, and really the season that Oregon's had, because obviously that concludes the regular season for the Ducks, which we'll, we'll have some coverage on. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, it's good full podcast. We covered all the bases and, and you were definitely well prepped for it. And, and uh, I guess we'll do it again next week. That's right. Fiesta next week right here. We're going to break down Oregon, Iowa State, and how the Ducks notch another New Year's Six win in the Cristobal era. That's next week right here. My name is Matt Bagley. He's Justin Hopkins. We thank you for listening to Scoop Duck and High Five. Again, thanks for listening. Go Ducks! I can do this now.